0: This message this morning, I I took a shot. It's not the best name, but I'm trying. (laughs) What in the mercy seat is propitiation? Trying to be clever, hopefully trying to help you guys understand something ahead of time that's tricky what in the mercy seat, you know, you say, what in the world is this? So I'm saying with a little clue, what in the mercy seat is propitiation? Isn't that intriguing? And doesn't it draw you in and make you want to know what this message is going to do for us? If it doesn't, then I failed with my clever name, but hopefully it does. Um, But what I want us to do is to consider the big picture of our justification before God. Now, This word justification We talked about it all last week. If you didn't hear that message, I appeal to you to go back and listen to that message or find a better message from some pastor that you trust on justification and righteousness in this passage of Romans 3. But it it refers to the perfect moral standing that we have before the Lord because through Christ we have been declared righteous before him by the blood of Jesus and today, I want to help us enjoy this gift. As I thought about what's the main application this morning, it's, it's really, I want to help myself, I want to help you enjoy this gift of righteousness that we've been given by delving deeper into its foundation. And I thought of this silly analogy. I, I might have used it, I, I have used it before and years ago, but I like it. Um, but if justification, it, it, it's kind of a cheesy analogy, but try to follow me. If our righteous standing before God was a a little car. Today what I want to do is I want to lift open the hood of the car and I want us to take a really good look at the engine. I want us to see the chrome and the metal and the sparkling tubes and the engine block shining in the sun. I want us to see what powers justification. What's at the heart of it? What's at the heart of this righteous standing we have before God? And so, I want to go back to our passage last week and focus on one phrase, one two word uh, focus, particularly, that's especially at the heart of it. So, starting in Romans 3, I'm going to read from verse 19 through 26. I'm going to stop right there. So, again, Paul tells us that through Jesus Christ, you and I, as believers in Christ, are given the righteousness of God, this perfect standing in God's courtroom that justifies us before Him. And remember the phrase I used last week to explain justification. Just as if I'd, anybody remember? Just as if I'd never done it, just as if I'd never sinned. That's a a kind of a a clever colloquial way to understand. It's a little at the top of the thing, you know, superficial, not in the bad way of superficial, but there's much more to it. But that works. Justification is being pronounced righteous in such a way that it's justification just as if I've never sinned. Or another way to put it is just as if I'd always lived righteously. That's the miraculous status that God gives you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, he sees you just as if you'd never sinned or just as if you'd always lived righteously. Now, Paul allows us to get under the hood of this gift of justification, particularly in verse 25. And I'm going to repeat it in its context. This is going to be our focus this morning. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And here comes the zinger whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now this is a mouthful. It's a massive mouthful. And I, I spent a whole message last week on this larger passage. So I, a lot of this may be um, new to you. And, and so I do commend you to last week's message if it is. But I want to focus on this phrase, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In verse 25, a propitiation by his blood. Verse 25 speaks of Jesus as the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Last week, I introduced this strange word, propitiation. Nobody uses this word in the world. It's a weird word. But this is, the engine under the hood of justification. It's a word God wants us to understand. It's a beautiful, incredible, strange little world. Propitiation word. We see this word in three other places in the New Testament. A form of it happens in 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you're a longtime Christian, you might remember that same verse said something like this. He is the atonement or the sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world. That's an f- okay way to translate it. But the word is propitiation. In verse John 4:10, in this love, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you guys have heard that he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again, that's an okay way to translate it, but I hope to show you it misses some of the richness of this word. And to see some of that richness, or get a hint at it, there's another passage in Hebrews where the exact form of this word is used in the book of Hebrews. The exact form of Paul's word here in Romans three twenty-five is used in the book of Hebrews in the ninth chapter, and there, the author of the Hebrews is recalling the ark of the covenant. And he's describing what was in the ark. And he says, Recall the Ark of the Covenant. And he talks about the golden box that the ark was that contained the Ten Commandments. And actually, we have a picture of it. I mean, not the actual ark, but a picture of of what it probably looked like. And you might remember this from what movie? Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not Indiana Jones, that came later. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders Lost Ark, that's what Indy was searching for. Sorry, Luke. Of all people, though, you you should know. You're probably trying to speak to a younger audience, and I'm not thinking connecting intergenerationally. But yes, Raiders Lost Ark, Indy goes after the Ark of the Covenant. Killed the Nazis, killed that little mouse on the plane, the holiness of God. I mean, you know, there's something to that. But the author is describing the Ark of the Covenant in Hebrews 9, and he talks about the cover above the Ark of the Covenant, the top of it, this plate that's, uh, that's encrusted with these two angels or sculpted into it. There, it's not just the top of the Ark. There's a special name for it. And the special name for the covering of the Ark where God's presence dwell above it, do you know what the special name for that is? Guess. Right. And you know what mercy seat's also? The same word in a different, the same Greek word for mercy seat is also the word, guess, propitiation. Propitiation is mercy seat. Mercy seat is propitiation. The word propitiation in Romans three twenty-five, and the word translated mercy seat in Hebrews nine five, to describe the covering of the ark that goes over the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, and upon whom, upon which the glory of the Lord dwells, is mercy seat. Propitiation equal. Oh, you have it right there. Of course you got it. It's right there on the slide. I was impressed. Now I'm impressed with your reading ability. But but. But, but So begs the question, why? Why does Paul use this word propitiation or mercy seat in talking about what Jesus did on Calvary? He does it because he knows it's a word that the Jewish Christians there would recognize as the cover over the Ark of the Covenant. But why is he referring to what Christ did in these terms as the covering of the Ark of the Covenant? It's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Why is he doing this? Well, for this answer, we have to go back to the book of Leviticus where God first explains to Moses what Israel must do to make atonement for the sins of the nation because that's where we find this word again, mercy seat. Once a year and once a year only, God says, the high priest must go into the holiest place on earth and in that time, the holiest place on earth was the deepest and holiest room of the temple, the temple complex that God gave Israel. Sometimes it was a temple when they built it later in Jerusalem, but before that it was called the tent of meeting. So tent of meeting and temple really refer to the same kind of structure. It's the housing for the Ark of the Covenant. And the most holy place was the room in the deepest part of that temple or tent of meeting where the Ark sat. It sat behind a thick and high curtain. And above the mercy seat, above the covering of the ark, the glory of God, his presence dwelt. And in some understandings of it, his his glory dwelt for for a time, visibly in a cloud. So, the ark of the covenant is covered by something called a mercy seat. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans 3.25 as referring to what Christ did for us, propitiation. And above that mercy seat was the glory of the Lord dwelling. So let's read more in Leviticus 16 and try to get a handle on why Paul is bringing us into this. The Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the mercy seat on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. This is how this instruction on how to make atonement for the nation starts. It starts with this warning You can't come into this holy place anytime you want. My glory will be there. And if you come whenever you want in your way of choosing, you will die. God's reminding Moses that no one can come into God's presence on their terms. Aaron's sons did. A few chapters earlier, they disobeyed God and came near to the Ark of the Covenant in a way that God had not commanded. And fire came from the presence of the Lord and killed Aaron's two sons right there his two firstborn sons. So now God tells Moses, this is how you must approach me. He says one priest and only one priest can come once a year and only once a year into the most holy place where the ark dwelt, where the mercy seat was covered by the glory of the Lord. And into that place only once a year can he come to make atonement for the whole nation. And this is what the priest was to do every year. And as we read the instructions, God is going to refer to Aaron the whole time because Aaron was the first priest. But he's really talking about all the priests that would do it after Aaron. And he says that after washing, after Aaron was to wash and dressed in special garments, after he was to offer a bowl for himself and his family, he was to do this. I want you to listen really closely. This will pay dividends, Lord willing, as we keep going. He is, bye bye guys. He is to cast lots for two goats. (laughs) One lot, it's like basically uh, rolling dice for for one goat and the other. He's to cast lots for two goats. One lot for the Lord, one goat goes to the Lord, and the other goat is called the scapegoat. And Aaron, the priest, shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And then with incense to shield him, Aaron is to come behind the curtain where God's presence dwells above the mercy seat of the ark. Verse 13, Aaron or he is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the mercy seat above the tablets of the covenant law, so that he will not die. Verse 15, He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. He shall sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. And after other instructions, Aaron is to come to the second goat. Not the one that was sacrificed, but the other one that was kept alive. And here's what he is to do. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. All their sins. And put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. And listen to this. When God finished all these instructions, he said, on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. Before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. With these instructions, God communicates crucial things to Israel. He communicates that he is holy. His presence dwells, we can move to the next slide. His, his presence dwells, he is holy. His presence dwells where no one can come apart from his permission and in his way. He is righteous. The glorious presence Of God, it dwelt in one place, in particular in all the world at this time, above the righteous law of God, represented by the Ten Commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant. He communicated that sin is lethal. Sinning against the law requires death. The blood of slaughtered animals communicated the seriousness of breaking God's law and its consequences. God communicates that atonement is costly, Blood is needed. The life of a living being is needed to atone for sin. But here's what else God communicates He desires to be with His people. This tabernacle or temple, when they were in the wilderness, it was at the very center of the encampment, it was to be at the very center of their lives. This is where God wants to be with us today. He wants to be in our lives. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to be at the core of our lives. It communicates that God is full of mercy for sinners. Again, He wants relationship with us, He works to keep relationship with us. This annual ritual was provided to keep relationship with God and His sinful people possible, to keep it healthy to keep it vibrant and to free these people from their sense of guilt at least once a year through this atonement. And, and lastly, I want to say that we learn from this God's mercy, it has integrity. What I mean is that his mercy doesn't come cheap. It isn't illegitimate, it's bought. The the very place where the high priest sprinkles the blood of the slaughtered animal is the mercy seat which sits above the law. So God is being really honest. (laughs) These are my laws. I care about them. You've broken my laws. I care about that. I am making atonement through the blood in this very place where my laws have been broken. I make atonement. Atonement is made. And my glory dwells. It's for all these reasons, I believe, that Paul has spent so much time in chapter three and in one and two as well, bringing God's holiness, God's law before our eyes. He's honest. About God's holiness. He's honest about God's righteousness. He's honest about our sin. He's honest about judgment. And in in the midst of all that being real, being honest, he brings forth Jesus as the solution to all of that honest, real, hard stuff. Jesus is the solution. He brings forth Jesus as the propitiation. He says, Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the place where atonement is made for all sin. And and this, I conjecture, is central to why Paul uses this word, propitiation or mercy seat. Jesus on his cross is the real mercy seat. Jesus on his cross is the tested, faithful, indestructible, sure, Fire, absolute, guaranteed, won't let you down, knows you're a sinner. He is the place where atonement is made for you and for me. Christ crucified, if we could put it this way, is the real mercy seat. He is the very center of God's atonement. But he doesn't do it with the blood of goats. That was just a picture. It was just a poem. It was just a hint. He doesn't do it with the blood of an animal. It's not the blood of an animal that's poured out before the presence of a holy God. And so how much more fully and truly, (laughs) if it's not a goat, if it's the son of God's blood, how much more fully and truly does that blood cleanse us And make us righteous in God's sight. How much more fully and truly and infinitely will that blood justify us in God's sight. Despite all of our sins. In the book of Hebrews we're told something mysterious and wonderful. We're told that the temple or the tent of meeting. And all that was inside it. That God had the Israelites prepare where they put the ark and the mercy seat in the middle of it where all these sacrifices were made, we're told that it's just, a, it's just a poem. It's just a copy. It's just a picture of a true heavenly temple where God dwells. And we're told that Christ, as our high priest, this is what the author of the Hebrew says, entered once for all into the real holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption, not an annual repeated redemption, an eternal redemption forever for good. For Christ, the author goes on, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on your behalf, on my behalf, on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, meaning annually, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen. The Israelite priest had to go through that ritual we read before the mercy seat every year. While it was a happy day, the annual repetition reminded them of their continued sin and that their redemption was not complete. But Jesus' sacrifice is not like this. The worth of his sacrifice is so great, it's so infinite, that he makes us clean before God forever now. He makes us righteous in God's sight for all eternity. And this is why Hebrews says this incredible thing. It says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected. This is the Hebrews way of saying he has justified. He has declared you righteous for all time. Those who are being made holy. Holy. come back to Leviticus and this second goat. Do you remember what happened to the second goat after the first goat was sacrificed? It was after and only after the first goat made blood atonement upon the mercy seat that Aaron the high priest then goes to that second goat. He places his hands on the goat and he symbolically places all the sins of the whole nation upon that animal and then sends it away forever from any living person. No one would ever see or hear from that animal covered with sin again. This is another picture of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, upon whom our sins were placed and removed from us forever. I know this is hard for us because we still battle and struggle with sin, but this is what God wants us to understand. This is how he sees us in Christ. And we'll learn in Romans as we go, he doesn't pretend we don't still struggle with sin. But in his courtroom, those sins are gone forever. When Israel read Psalm 103, and they read this, for as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our sins from us. They might have well thought of that scapegoat sent as far from the camp as possible. But we see the picture so much more clearly. We see Christ on the cross carrying our sins away from us forever. And we hear God say with infinitely greater force what he said to Moses. On this day, atonement will be made for you, to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. Brothers and sisters, I I just appeal to you, if you can, to look with the eyes of your heart at Jesus on the cross. His body given for you, offered for you on the cross on Good Friday. And hear the word of God from Leviticus. On this day, atonement is made for you to cleanse you. Now before the Lord, you are clean from all your sins. This is justification. This is the gift of righteousness. This Jesus offered for you The blood of the Son of God poured out upon the true mercy seat on the cross. He goes into the most holy place in the heavenlies before God for you. And God then says, you are clean in my sight from all your sins. I know you still struggle with sin. You will until the day you die. But in my sight, you stand righteous and justified. So, Just one major application and then two subheadings from that. Rejoice and enjoy the truth that before the Lord you are clean from all your sins and righteous in his son. There's tension. We'll get to that. But this is the word of God. This is what justification means. You stand righteous before God. All your sins no longer counted against you, but righteous in Jesus Christ for his sake, by his blood. We will battle with imperfection and failure until the day we go to be with God. But that does not change what we are before Jesus. We're justified, Paul says. We're righteous in his sight. Now, I want to encourage us in delighting in our righteousness and enjoying it in a couple of ways. First, I just want to say, fight against living in guilt. The Spirit will help you enjoy this truth as you fight against guilt with faith that God honors what Christ has done. It's a bit cumbersome, but let me try to explain When we recall and go over in our head again and again moral failures that that we've truly confessed, that we've really renounced, when we do that again and again and again, days into weeks into months into years, I do not believe there is any goodness or holiness or benefit in continuing to embrace the guilt of those sins. Certainly Satan seeks to plague us with guilt. He's called the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. And, and there's tension here. God may allow us to feel certain kinds of sorrow when we sin or emotional pain as a means of reminding us that sin hurts us and it hurts others and it grieves him. And perhaps he will allow pain to push us to cling harder to him. And 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 we're all different. God wires us different. We have different chemistries, we have different melancholy spirits. It's harder and easier for some of us to cling to the grace of God. I, I understand that. But I do want to say, and this is a huge battle for me, but, but I do want to say that granted that we have acknowledged whatever the sin may be and we have renounced it, God's desire, listen, God's desire is not that we would bear on our backs the sins he has placed on his son. Do you understand that? It it isn't his desire that we would continually bear on our backs the sin that he has placed on his son. He wants us to enjoy what his son has done for us. He's not honored that way when we try to bear it ourselves. He's honored by us believing what he says about us in Jesus. And I know this is a battle. It's a battle for me. It's painful, he knows that too. But he calls us to this. So if, like me, you're prone to this, I want to encourage you, can spend, spend a lot of time thinking and reading and praying over what Jesus' blood has bought for you. I know a couple of great books that just spend chapter after chapter after chapter going over this again and again and again to free you, to heal you, to make you put your dependence where it belongs, on Jesus Christ and not on yourself. Number two, this is more complicated. The Spirit will help you enjoy your righteousness in Christ as you seek to cling to your righteousness in Christ by faith and seek to live righteous before Christ. And, and I have more to say about this. Um, but I'm going to try to capture it as quickly as I can. This 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 is counterintuitive to me. It may seem counterintuitive to you. See, I can easily think, well, if, if in light of the fact that I do not have to earn my righteousness, that I'm already clean before the Lord, in light of the truth that God does not count my sin against you, does, does not count my sin against me, if I keep trying to live righteously after knowing that I don't, in, in one sense, I don't have to earn my own righteousness, how, how am I going to be able to rest <laughs> in the righteousness I already have in Christ? I mean, aren't I going to be lured in, into legalism always trying to prove myself before God? Well, let me, let me tell you something. Yes. Yes. And I, I experience this. Anybody who knows me closely would know this about me. I battle with performance stuff before the Lord and and, and many of you do too. And and I think it can be disorienting to try to unplug your hose from yourself and plug it into Jesus. Like to try to move from depending on yourself and your performance and, and, and put it on depending on Jesus and his performance. That's a tricky thing. That, that's not an easy thing for those of us who are really used to feeling the pressure all the time and feeling the weight of our performance all the time. I mean, I, I, as I as I come into contact with these truths, a lot of times I just feel like I just want to say thank you, God, and then just go take a nap for like a year or a decade because I'm so used to trying to earn it, trying to earn it, trying to earn it. And and I think... I. All I can say, this is still cooking in the oven uh, for me. All I can say is that God is gracious. He understands that. I think he's gracious with us. He understands it's disorienting to move from being used to being a law keeper for my own salvation's sake to being dependent on Christ for what he's done instead. I've told you guys before, there have been times where I've gotten so caught up in how my quiet times have to be perfect that I've, I've had to just take a break from quiet times because they became my righteousness. My little prayer closet became my justification before God. And so I just think this is, this is a really tricky thing. It's a really hard thing. And I think God has grace, he has compassion. And like I said, I am I'm still trying to process through this myself myself. But I don't think the answer is so much to just give up on pursuing holiness. I actually don't think that's, that's going to be healthy for us in the long run at all. I think the answer is we have to keep focusing on the cross and what he's done for us. We have to keep Jesus as our righteousness before us. We have To keep reminding ourselves of it, keep meditating on it. And, and I think that will equip us to then pursue God from the right motivation. And we have to pray for God to, to help us with our motivation. Because a lot of our, our habits of legalism and, and self-righteousness, they, they can reinforce that in our hearts. So th- th- there's, a, there's a Holy Spirit supernatural work that has to take place here. We have to cry out to him, God, please. I don't want to take a nap for a year and a decade. I got a wife to love. My kids, need, they, they need my love. Jen needs my love. My church needs my love. You want me to love? There's joy in loving. But God, how do I do this? How do I do this? Trusting in your righteousness and what you've done for me, as opposed to the pressure, the performance mindset of. And I think we got to pray through this. I think we got to keep meditating on the gospel. I think we got to try to love the Lord and love people. And he's patient with us. But I think maturing as a Christian, again and again and again, it turns out to be holding things in tension. Holding things that are hard in tension together and trying to grow and holding them together. And scripture teaches us that these things go together. That clinging by faith to the truth that we are already righteous in Jesus and also seeking by his power to live righteously, they, they, those things go together. And so I think as we make, as we grapple and stumble trying to, to do that, knowing that it, so many of us are, are really legalists at heart and battle with it and hate it, that God is gonna be giving us grace to be free from that. Surely he's gonna bless us with joy as we seek to do that. Well, brothers and sisters, that's all I have for us today. I do not know what God is going to do with this message in your heads. <laughs> I feel like I talked really fast with some crazy words, but I hope that something hit you and blessed you and nourished you today. And maybe you can put this message on some app that can slow it down like to half speed and hear me like this and it will be easier to process. But I didn't want to keep you to, uh, till 1215, so I pray that it didn't engender too much confusion. Let me pray for us. I'm going to pray the prayer from... Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself, may he sanctify you completely. May he grow you in holiness completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has won blamelessness for you. And may he keep you blameless in his sight through all your ups and downs and imperfections, through the blood of his son. And then Paul says these beautiful words. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely keep us blameless through the blood of his son. In his name we pray, amen.